Bibles to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. And this morning in our chapter, the Apostle Paul is going to start to give a dynamic testimony. And it was always, you know, when you see these great men of God and women of God and when they share their testimonies, to, to, to kind of dissect them and look at how, how they do it, what they say. And again, it's just it's very simple and, and to, you know, follow their pattern, but, you know, with the things that God has done in your life. And like I said, this morning, Paul is going to start his testimony in front of some very high, high-powered people, influential people. Uh, where we, we, I'll pick up here where we left off last week as we get into uh, this chapter. Last week, Fester had ordered Paul to be brought into the courtroom. That is Governor Festus. And then Festus said <clears throat> to King Agrippa and all the men that were with him there in the courtroom, he said this about Paul. He said, this man, uh, this is the man that, that all of the Jews came to me and complained about when I was in Jerusalem and also here in Caesarea. And these men insist that Paul should be put to death. He says, but I haven't found any reason why he should die. But because he wanted to go see Caesar, uh, the, uh, go to see the Caesar, uh, emperor, um, I, I have to send him to Rome. I decided to send him to Rome. He says, but when I send him to Caesar, I'm not, I don't have anything to accuse him. I have no accusation, no charges. I don't have anything in particular or definite to write to my Lord concerning him. So I brought him before all of you, and especially you, King Agrippa, hoping that after we've examined him a little further, I might have something to put down on paper, you know, some charges, and send him to Caesar. Because it doesn't make any sense to me, he says, that is Festus, and it would be foolish to send a prisoner and not have any charges against him. So let's begin now as we pick up in, verse, uh, in chapter, um, chapter 25, beginning with verse 1. And it says, Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. If you remember back in Acts chapter 9, God told Ananias that Paul would bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That was a prophecy given there in chapter 9. Now, here in chapter 25, that prophecy given back in chapter 9 is now being fulfilled here. Because now he's speaking in front of governors and kings and, and, again, important people. So all of this now is the fulfillment in chapter 25 of the prophecy given in chapter 9. So here Paul has gotten the king's permission to speak. So he stretches out his hand as if to get the people's attention, know that he's getting ready to speak. Paul's about to tell them about Jesus. All right, he's about to tell them about Jesus. Jesus Christ, and he's about to tell him this in a Gentile court in front of a king, King Agrippa. Now, there are several things about this chapter that we need to see before we get into Paul's message before King Agrippa. First of all, Paul is not on trial. Remember, there's no charges, so he's not on trial. They're trying to bring up charges, they're trying to find something to make him look like a criminal. This is not a court trial. He's not defending himself before Agrippa. He's preaching the gospel. 
Paul had asked to stand before Caesar. So not even King Agrippa could condemn him. And he's out of Governor Festus's control. And verse 32 in our chapter confirms, Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, they no longer had the authority to condemn Paul, nor to set him free. They're helpless. So Paul isn't trying to defend himself. He's trying to win these men to Jesus Christ. Again, this wasn't a trial. It was a public appearance of Paul in front of King Agrippa and the court so that they might learn firsthand from Paul what the way really is. Again, the way being one of the names for Christianity. Because everybody was talking about the way. Someone would ask, hey, have you heard about this new movement, the way? Uh, It's something new that's going around. I wonder what it's all about. Festus and Agrippa may have even talked about it. Agrippa might have had said, hey, you know, I've been hearing about this new movement. They're calling it the way. But he says, I'd like to know more about it so that we could, uh, you know, so we should get it from an expert, you know, speaking about Paul. So they're having this public hearing about the way to explain what is this, this thing called the way. And probably it's one of the best opportunities that any minister ever had to preach the gospel. Because when you look at the people that are listening, what an audience. This was a state function. And it was filled with, with dignitaries. It was filled with blowing of trumpets. And it was a special occasion. And there was tapestry. There were banners. There were all kinds of ornamentation. Uh, again, the function was attended by the important public figures around that area. VIPs of Rome. It must have been a real free-for-all for the people to be able to attend this occasion. The purple robes of Agrippa, the fancy jewelry and the gems of Bernice, it was all there. All the glitz and all the glamour of the Roman Empire, the elite, the intellectuals, the sophisticated, all showed up in, in full ceremonial dress. You know, I, kind of, I don't know, I was kind of liking it too, you know, when they have the, the Academy Awards and they roll out the red carpet and you see all the stars and all the big wigs of the, of the, of the movies and they're out there in all their clothes and the bright colors and just cameras flashing and and this is kind of you know the picture here all these dignitaries all these people in their in their royal gowns and all the 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 dress that they would wear you know at this this uh, special occasion so again it's it's uh, there would be pride there there would be this flashiness there would be this respectability because of who they are it would all be on display there at rome just like, a, 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 like only Rome could do on, on a day of a parade, you could say. You know, they would just parade all of this you know, in front of everybody. Paul's plea for Agrippa to receive Christ here is great. It's logical and it's intelligent. And rather than being, uh, uh, rather than being a defense for Paul, it was a presentation of the gospel. So let's begin with verses 2 through 3. Now, uh, verse 1. And then we'll go to verses 2 through 3. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that... I'm in the wrong chapter. (laughs) All right, let's let's start off in chapter 26. That would be a good place to start. Verses 1 through 3. All right. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. 
So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, or he says, I'm feeling fortunate, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. So Paul is now talking to a man who understands what he's talking about. King Agrippa is an intelligent man, and he knows the law of Moses, and he understands the Jewish background. Paul is really happy. He says, man, I feel really fortunate about this chance to speak to such an educated man, speaking of Agrippa, you know, who will understand what's really going on. Paul is also well-educated in the law of Moses. But here's the difference between Paul and Agrippa. Paul met Jesus Christ, though they were both well-knowledgeable of the law. You see, now Paul is a spirited-filled believer, a spirit-filled believer. The law to him now has a whole new meaning. Paul's heart and Paul's soul is filled with a new light, the light of Jesus Christ. And now he sees that Jesus is the end of all of the law for righteousness. Now Paul knows that God has supplied him with what he's demanded. He knows that God is good. He knows that through Jesus Christ, God is gracious. And Paul wants King Agrippa to know this. There's a perfect passion that fills Paul's heart as he speaks. And even though there were probably several hundred people there, Paul's speaking to only one man, King Agrippa, trying to win this man for Jesus Christ. Because again, you know, when you, it, when you can win a, a powerful man with a lot of influence, that person could do a lot for Jesus Christ in witnessing for Christ. Paul starts out with a very courteous introduction. Again, he tells King Agrippa how happy and, and how fortunate he is to have this opportunity to speak. And then he gives King Agrippa a short outline of his youth and background. So notice, he's going to start telling him now a little bit about himself. So he tells him about his youth and his background. And then he tells about his conversation. I'm sorry, his conversion and he finally tries to reach the man for Christ. So these are the things that we'll see during his witnessing to King Agrippa. So let's first read the whole message, and then we'll break it down. Let's read verses two, uh, 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 verse 2 through 21, all right? Verse 2 through 21. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially... Because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. So now he's going to start off about speaking about when he was young. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. So he says, all the Jews know about my early life. Verse 5, they knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I live a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This also, this I also did in Jerusalem, 
And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign, uh, foreign cities. He said, while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have prepared to you, I have appeared to you for this purpose, that is, notice, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I, have, I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and that an, inher an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent Turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to kill me. So first off, in verses 4 through 11, Paul tells Agrippa about his, his youth, his young life. He tells King Agrippa about how he, how he lived a Pharisee in verse 5. The Jews knew about Paul's early life in Jerusalem. So Paul didn't have to give him a lot of detail. Now, he was a devout Pharisee, and he was the son of a Pharisee, and his colleagues figured out that probably he, uh, he would do great things as a rabbi, but because of his convictions about the resurrection and the hope of Israel, he was now a prisoner, and once again, Paul appealed to, Jew, to, uh, to Jewish accepted belief and loyalty to the Hebrew tradition. And it's worth mentioning that Paul mentioned in verse 7, our 12 tribes. Even though the 10 northern tribes, which were Israel, were conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. <clears throat> and assimilated to some degree, it's not true that these 10 tribes were lost because some people still call them the 10 lost tribes. They weren't wiped out. They weren't lost. God doesn't lose anybody. Jesus spoke about all 12 tribes in Matthew 19. So did James in James chapter 1. And the Apostle John talked about the 12 tribes in Revelation chapter 7 and 21. You see, God knows where his chosen people are. And he will fulfill the promises that he made to them. Now, in verse 8, the word you, all right, the word you is plural. All right, it's plural. So Paul must have been looking around at the whole audience as he spoke. He was, you know, again... The Greeks and the Romans wouldn't naturally believe in the resurrection, nor would the Sadducees who were there. So to Paul, this was an important doctrine. Because you see, if there is no resurrection, 
then Jesus Christ wasn't raised from the dead, so Paul had no gospel to preach. And we'd be here today for no reason. Pastor Chuck said this about the resurrection. The transformation that took place when you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ is the most powerful evidence you can give for the resurrection. Paul wasn't just a Pharisee. He'd also been a fanatical persecutor of the church. Paul had punished the believers and he tried to force them to deny Jesus Christ. And he had helped send some of them to their death. In verse 10, notice it says, in the, the, he's, he, the phrase there where he said, I cast my vote. In verse 10, when he said, I cast my vote, that literally means registered my vote. The Greek phrase translate, uh, translated literally uh, reads, I threw my pebble. In other words, this refers to the ancient custom of recording votes. Uh, 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 you would throw a black, a black pebble for, uh, for conviction, uh, or you throw a white pebble uh, for release. So Paul's reference here to voting against Christians implies that he once was a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish court in the land. And in the early days of the church, the Jewish believers continued to meet in the synagogues, and that's where Paul found them and punished them. So when he said, I would cast my votes against them, he was casting his vote to have them put to death. So what Paul did in his early years, you know, to Paul, man, he thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. He, you know, he looked, he looked as a, 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 like a, 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 he had a, re, a religious zeal. He was fired up and thinking that he was doing the will of God. What he did in his later years, though, he said, man, he, he considered it to be madness. He realized it was madness. He says, I was like a wild animal in my youth. And it says in Acts 8 that he, he made havoc of the church. In Acts 9, he said it was, he was breathing out threatenings and slaughtering the church. Now, verses 12 and 13. Notice what it says there. Verses 12 through 13, he says, I saw a light from heaven. Paul wasn't just happy to do his shameful work in the area of Jerusalem. Paul had asked for permission to go to the synagogues in faraway cities. His fanaticism had driven him out driven out many of the believers and they had to take you know they had they had taken their message to Jews in other communities Paul thought he was an enlightened man why because he was a Jew why did he think he was an enlightened man because he was a scholar why did he think he was an enlightened man because he was a Pharisee when in reality he had been living in serious spiritual darkness he knew the law before he was saved he knew it well but you see, he hadn't realized that the purpose of the law was to bring him to Christ. To bring him to Christ. Paul had been a self-righteous Pharisee who needed to learn that, that his good works and his education and his respectable character, character could never save him. None of those things could ever get him into heaven. And you know what? It's the same for all of us. Our education, our good works... You know, our respectable character or whatever else good thing that we can say about ourselves, none of those things will get us into the kingdom of heaven. We must get in by God's standards. The light that Paul saw on the road to Damascus, it was supernatural because it was the glory of God that was revealed from heaven to Paul. It blinded Paul for three days, but even though he was blinded, his spiritual eyes were open and he could see better than ever before. Through the spiritual eyes. He could see the living Christ. And could see better than ever. 
But here's the thing. Seeing a light wasn't enough. He also had to hear the word. <clears throat> and this is a good example to follow. You know, Paul had, an, uh, he had a spiritual experience. And a lot of people claim to have spiritual experiences. But you know what? You need to compare it to the... You need to run it through the Word of God. All right? Does it measure up to the Word of God? Does it mention it in the Word of God? Is it something that the Word of God reveals or supports? Because there's a lot of spiritual experiences in this world that are not biblical. Oh, God said this, and it may be contrary to the Word of God. Well, it wasn't the God of the Bible. You know, God said, I can go ahead and do this. And yet the Bible says, you're not supposed to do that. And I've heard that for years. But again, you need to run it through the Scriptures. Does God's Word say that? Does God's Word support what it is you experience? Because we, have, we can have a whole lot of different experiences. And you've got to remember that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. He's a great duplicator. He's a great imitator. He's a great phony. So he can make things look like, you know, God's doing it. <clears throat> and yet, it can be totally contrary to what God's word says. So it's important to back up any spiritual experience or what anybody tells you with the word of God to make sure that it's the word of God and, and God's will. And so Paul, you know, he saw, he saw this light. He had this experience. But again, he ha- you know, it was enough. He also had to hear the word of God. All right? And he did. He heard Jesus speak. So in Ephesians 1.13, Paul said, In him, speaking of Christ, you also trusted. Notice he says, After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. They trusted in Christ after they heard the word of God. Romans 10.17, Paul said, then, then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Then Paul speaks about hearing that voice in verses 14 through 18 here as he continues his testimony to King Agrippa. In verses 14 through 18, he speaks about his road to Damascus conversion. He said, I heard a voice. Paul's companions saw the light, but they didn't see the Lord. And they heard a sound, but they couldn't understand the words that were being spoken. They all fell to the ground, it says, but only Paul, or Paul only stayed on the ground, according to Acts chapter 9. Jesus spoke to Paul in the familiar Aramaic language of the Jews, and he called Paul by name. And he told him, it was no use, Saul. At that time, his name was Saul. He said, it's no use, Saul, to keep fighting the Lord. And in that moment, Paul recognized, or he learned a couple of amazing things. That when Jesus spoke to him, Jesus was alive. And not only that, Jesus was also united with his people. In other words, that when they suffered, Jesus suffered. Isn't that neat to know that when you suffer, Jesus is feeling it. Jesus is suffering along with you. Paul wasn't just persecuting the church. He was also persecuting his Messiah. His Messiah. God is united to his people. It's comforting to know that God in his grace speaks to his enemies. God here was speaking with Paul at the moment an enemy until he received Christ. So again, Paul had been, you know, Paul had been resisting him all this time. God had been dealing with Paul. And Jesus tells him, Paul, it's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it? <clears throat> now, what were these goads that, were, that Paul was kicking against? Well, no doubt Stephen's testimony. 
You know, when, Paul was, when, when Stephen was being stoned to death, Paul was there, and he was, he was holding the coats of the people. So he was watching what was going on, but he saw the beautiful testimony of Stephen. You know, Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. And he says, I see an angel up in heaven. And that must have just, Paul's seeing all of this. He's going, man, this is, I can't believe what he's saying and what he's doing, how, what he, how he's dealing with this. And that would be hard to forget. Not only that, he probably saw the faithful witness of the other saints who had suffered because of Paul, those that he went and took out of the synagogues and those that he put to death. Another thing that would be hard to just write off like, you know, no big deal. And even though now he could say he was blameless, all right, in his conduct and in his conscience, yet in his own heart, he knew. He knew just how short he fell, how far he fell from meeting God's holy standards. <clears throat> now, when Jesus tells him that you're going to be a minister for me in verse 16, that's a heavy word. The word minister in verse 16 means an under rower. An under rower. And if you don't know what an under rower is, this refers to the one who rowed in the lowest part of the ship. There may have been three or four rows of, of rowers, but the under rower was the one who was at the very bottom of the ship. The under rower was in the hottest, smelliest, dirtiest part of the ship. And you can imagine those that were on top. Any secretions, anything that fell from those, guess where it went? Down, down to the very bottom. And they were not noticed people. And Jesus said, Paul, I'm going to make you a minister, an under rower. Paul was used to being an honored leader. And after he got saved, he became a subordinate worker and Jesus Christ became his master. The Lord promised to be with Paul and to protect him. And the Lord also promised to reveal himself to Paul. Paul saw the Lord on the Damascus road. And again, he saw him three years later while he was in the temple. The Lord appeared to Paul later in Corinth and also in Jerusalem. And he appeared, uh, appeared to him again. And after Paul's conversion, I am sure that Paul was so surprised to hear that the Lord <clears throat> was sending him to the Gentiles because he had, a, he had a great love for his own people, the Jews. And he said he would have gladly given himself for the Jews that they might experience the salvation to win them to Jesus. But that wasn't God's plan. Paul would always be the apostle to the Gentiles. And verse 18 here describes the spiritual condition of the lost and the gracious provision of Christ for those who will believe. Again, notice verse 18. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Again, verse 18 describing the spiritual condition of the lost, but yet the gracious provision that Christ has for those who will believe. Paul... Uh, Paul said here, the, the lost sinner is like a blind prisoner in a dark dungeon and only Jesus Christ can open his eyes and give him light and give him freedom. But here's the thing. Even after he's set free, what about his record? You know, it's like you, you, you do time in prison, you have a record. You have a criminal record. 
you're set free, but that record stays with you forever. But in this case, when Jesus sets you free, what about your record? What about all the stuff you've done in the past? Well, that's expunged from your record. It's wiped clean. The past is gone in God's eyes. And he doesn't remember your sins or your past anymore. You see, the Lord forgives sinners' sins and he wipes the record clean. And if anyone is in Christ, they become a new creation. The old things, all that old junk, all that old evil and that evil stuff from the past has been, has been passed, is passed away and behold, all things have become new. You get a brand new, fresh, clean start. Jesus said, Behold, I make all things new in Revelation 21.5. And not only does he make you new and clean off your slate and give you a fresh start, he takes you into his own family and you become one of his own children and you share his inheritance with you. He shares his inheritance with you. What must the sinner do? He must turn to Jesus Christ. He must trust Jesus Christ and he must have faith in him, verse 18 says. You see, Paul had to lose his religion to be saved. And that's hard for a lot of people to do. You know, from their youth, they're brought up in a religion and they're told certain things. And, you know, if you ever go to another church, you're going to go to hell. I know I was told that. You ever step into another church, you're going to hell. When I said, oh man, you know, it's, all, no, it's not for me. But it's ingrained in you and then your parents just, you know, they tell you that and then, and then you know, like this here now. You know, it, but we, you have to lose your religion in order to find Jesus Christ. And that's so important. So, and you, you, gotta, you, you gotta read the scriptures. You gotta hear it from the scriptures. Having faith in Jesus Christ. And then Paul learned in a flash of time that all his righteousness was nothing but filthy rags in God's eyes. And that Paul says he needed the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness that God puts on us and that's what allows us to stand in the presence of God. His righteousness, not my own. And then in verses 19 through 21, Agrippa, I mean, uh, Paul goes on to speak to Agrippa and, and tell him, you know, after the day he was saved, he's, or the moment he was saved, I was not disobedient. In verse 9, he says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In other words, Paul asked, when, when, when Jesus spoke to Paul, he said, Paul said, what do you want me to do, Lord? Right off the bat. And Paul was sincere when the Lord told him what to do. Because he obeyed his orders immediately. Great example to follow when God tells us what to do. To follow those orders immediately. He said to the Jews first and then the Gentiles in verse 20, Repent, turn to God and do works befitting of repentance. Notice that. Befitting of repentance. In other words, he said, Repent from your sins, turn to God and prove that you have changed by the good things that you do. This is important. There should be a way of life that, that, that accompanies the born-again experience. You repent of your sins. You turn to God. You turn away from your sins. You prove now that you have, you have changed. How? By the things that you do. 
The old things have passed away. Everything has become new. When John the Baptist was baptizing in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, listen to what he says. When John the Baptist saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. He said, you brood of snakes who warned you to flee God's coming wrath. He said, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Notice that. God demands results. And the evidence of a new life is the evidence that you're born again. The old life is gone. The old things that I used to do, the evil things I used to do, which I didn't think twice about doing, they're done. They're over. They're gone. And now I have a whole new lifestyle because I got a whole bunch of new desires that I didn't have before. But God demands results. Paul started right on the spot at Damascus. The moment that Paul began to obey Jesus Christ on the spot, it almost cost him his life. See, it doesn't take long for Satan to come at you. The minute you become a Christian, Satan's on you. Also, when he had witnessed to the Jews in Jerusalem, remember, they tried to kill him. And even though Paul experienced discouragements and dangers over and over again, Paul stayed obedient to the call and the vision that Jesus gave him. Nothing moved him. And then in verse 21, for these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to kill me. Notice that. He says, for these reasons that I just preached the gospel and and I've had a changed life and and I'm trying to tell him, he says, for these reasons, I was attacked and almost killed. It's because I said Jesus was alive. It's because I told him Jesus was Israel's Messiah. He says, it's because of my ministry to the Gentiles and offering God's covenant blessings to both Jews and Gentiles on the same term of repentance and faith. Jew and Gentile alike, they both had to come to Christ through repentance and faith. That's why they wanted to kill me. The proud Israelites would not have anything to do with those or with the Jew who treated Gentiles like Jews. Verses 22 through 32 now. Verses 22 through 32. Therefore, Paul said, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying, no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, notice, Paul, you're beside yourself. In other words, you're mad. You're crazy. Much learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not mad, most noble Festus. But I speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I speak also freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention. Since this thing was not done in a corner somewhere in the world. You know, like in some place in the dark corner of the world. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both most almost to all, that today might become both almost and altogether such as I am except for these chains. When he had said these things, the, good, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with him. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves saying, this man is doing nothing. 
deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So in verse 22, he's saying, you know, to this day I stand. In other words, it's one thing to have a great beginning. All right, with seeing visions and, and hearing voices, but it's something else to keep on going. Are we still standing today? Are we still standing on, on, on the cross, on the foundation of Jesus Christ? Are we still anchored deep? Especially when things are going tough. Because it's easy to, to stand when things are going smoothly. And the fact that Paul continued in his ministry and continued preaching the gospel was proof that Paul was saved. It was evidence of the faithfulness of God. Paul was saved by God's grace, and God's grace is what enabled him to continue to serve God. Jesus said in Matthew 10, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. The word endures means puts up with. So you could read it, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who puts up with all persecution, all trials, all difficulties, all tough times in my life, he who puts up with those things to the end will be saved. You see, it's not how far we've gone in this Christian life, but it's how far we are. It's getting, it, it's go, it's getting to the end. Like Paul said, I press towards the mark. The high calling. And, and, and we do not reach that mark till we are in the grave. That's the mark. That's what Jesus was saying. He says, those who endure to the end, those who put up with all that they go through, all the difficulties as a Christian, they put up with those things, they endure those things, they will be saved. Now, the putting up part, the enduring, is not the way you get saved, okay? The enduring is not the way to salvation. Enduring is evidence that you are saved. Enduring is evidence that a person is truly committed to Jesus Christ because they put up with all that they need to go through or must go through to the very end. And I love this, this quote by Sidney Smith. He said, evil is to be endured because many times I hear Christians say, oh, you know, we shouldn't have to, you know, shouldn't have to deal with evil. It's not God's will to, that we deal with evil or evil should you know, happen to us. Wrong. Sidney Smith said, evil is to be endured. He said, let us never forget that the fifth and greatest gospel is the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus endured evil. He said that Jesus acted for us as well as taught that in the deserts of Judea, in the hall of Pilate, on the cross, his obedience and patience shows us that evil is to be endured and his prayers point out to us how alone evil can be alleviated. In the wilderness, Matthew 4, Jesus endured evil from the temptations of Satan. On the cross, Jesus endured the evil of mankind on the cross. We see in the, in the court with Pilate, he endured the evil of men who gave him a, a mockery of a, tri a trial, an unfair trial, and was, and was found guilty and crucified. He endured all of that to the end. That's why he could say, it is finished. And that's where we have to come to, enduring to the end, so that we can say, oh, 
It's finished. I fought the fight, the good fight. I ran the race. Now I get my, my, now I get my prize. The one word that summarizes Paul's life and ministry best is witnessing. Witnessing. He was a witness. And that means he simply shared with others what he had learned and experienced as a follower of Jesus Christ. His message wasn't something that he made up. The message that Paul gave was based solidly on the Old Testament scriptures. And we have to remember, Paul and the other apostles, they didn't have the New Testament. They used the Old Testament to lead sinners to Jesus Christ and to develop the new sinners. I'm sorry, the new believers. Verse 23 here is a summary of the gospel. Look at verse 23. That the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Verse 23 is the summary of the gospel. And each part can be backed up from the Old Testament. Paul could even defend uh, his call to the Gentiles from Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6. Jesus was, the, was not, Jesus was not the first person to be raised from the dead, but he was the first to be raised from the dead and never die again. Paul called him the first fruits of them that slept. In, in Paul's message in the temple, when Paul got the word, when, when Paul got to the word Gentiles, remember back in chapter 22 of Acts, when he was in the temple and he was giving the message, and when he said Gentiles, the crowd exploded. They went nuts. That's the word that Paul spoke when Festus responded loudly and accused Paul of being mad. Crazy. Now, it's, it's strange how the world has things backwards. It isn't, you know, it, it, when, when, Fest, when Paul was out there and he, and he was uh, persecuting the church, Festus doesn't think he was mad then. And then when he starts, you know, preaching the gospel and wanting to see people get saved, go to heaven, oh, now he's crazy. But that's the way the world sees things. So again, but it wasn't the first time that Paul was, had been called crazy. He was only following in the footsteps of his master, Jesus Christ. Paul had been speaking to King Agrippa, but the emotional interruption of the governor forced Paul to, to, say to, to, to reply, Governor Festus, the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is public knowledge. Paul says, hey, this didn't happen in some corner somewhere there in verse 26. The Jewish Sanhedrin was involved, and, and so was the Roman governor Pilate. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a famous public figure for at least three years, and huge crowds followed him, so how could the governor say he didn't know? Festus hadn't interrupted uh, because he really thought Paul was mad. If that was true, he would have treated Paul gently and ordered him you know, off by some of the guards to you know, gently escort Paul. If, again, if he really was, thought he was mad, he would have been gentle and he was, got some guards to escort him to a place of safe, uh, safety and rest. You know, hey, take him to one of our padded cells. But he was angry at him. Why would, he, why would he be angry at somebody if he thought, this poor guy, he's nuts? You know, he, he's, he's not really, you know, he's not fit for trial. He's not capable of standing trial. You know, he's just, he's crazy. He's got mental problems. Why would you get mad at somebody like that? Not only that, what official would send, in his eyes, a raving nut to be tried before the emperor? You know, he was angry. He was convicted by what Paul was saying. 
the governor was only showing he was being convicted. He was feeling the sword of the Spirit cutting through his heart. Paul's words found their mark. And Festus was trying to dodge the sword of the Spirit. But Paul didn't forget King Agrippa, a Jew who was an expert in these matters. And when Paul asked King Agrippa if he believed the prophets, now he was forcing King Agrippa to take a stand. And for sure the king wouldn't deny what every Jew believed. But here's the thing, if Agrippa knew that if he said, yes, Paul, I believe the prophets, then he had to face the question, is Jesus of Nazareth the one the prophets wrote about? So Festus avoided making a decision by accusing Paul of being mad. So King Agrippa dodges Paul's question and the problem it presented by adopting a superior attitude, that he was more superior than Paul, and belittling Paul's witness. Notice his reply in verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. He says, to, in other words, he said, Paul, do you think that in such a short time, with such few words, you can persuade me to become a Christian? And he might have even said it with a smirk on his face or some mockery in his voice. But he certainly announced his own death warrant by saying, you know, he wouldn't be a Christian. Paul was polite in his reply in verse 29. Notice what he said. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Festus and Agrippa knew this prisoner had a compassionate concern for them, and they couldn't easily escape Paul's witness to them, his challenge. So the best thing for them to do was end the hearing. The king stands up. This says, this guy's mad. Meeting's over. Just like that. Remember, Paul might have been set free if he hadn't asked to go see Caesar. Was Paul foolish in, in wanting to go to Caesar? No, because see, by going to Caesar, that finally ended the repeated accusations of the, of the Jewish leaders about Paul. They knew that they couldn't successfully fight against Rome. What Agrippa and Festus didn't understand was that Paul had been, had Paul, that Paul was the judge. They were the ones that were on trial. They were the prisoners on trial. You know, enslaved and imprisoned by their own sin. They had been shown the light and the way to freedom by Paul. But they had deliberately closed their eyes and, and returned to their sins. Maybe they felt relieved that Paul was going to go to Rome now and the trouble would be all gone. Hey, we're, we're through with this guy and, and you know, we're, he's gone. We won't hear from him anymore. The trial was over, but their sentence was still to come in eternity if they never came to Christ. And it would come. What a wonderful thing it is, that to, it is to have the chance to trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. But what a terrible thing it is to waste such a beautiful chance, a beautiful opportunity, and maybe never, ever have another to be saved. That's why it's so important that, you know, when you have the opportunity, you, you, you accept Christ now. Today is the day of salvation. Because, again, we are not promised tomorrow. Father, we come before you and we thank you for this beautiful testimony by, by Paul.
the strong witness God and, and all he did was all he did Lord was talk about who he was before Christ who he was after Christ and how Christ took care of him and protected him and used him for his glory and Father that's all we have to do is tell people what Jesus has done tell, tell people about what Jesus has done for us and what a great God and Savior that He is. And if you're here this morning or you're watching on TV or, or outside and you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit as Festus and Agrippa did, rather than getting angry though, you submit to Jesus, you quit kicking against the goads, but all the truth that you know about Christ and receive him in your heart through a simple prayer. Pray it out with me, dear Jesus. I confess to you, I am a sinner. Please forgive me of all of my sins. Cleanse me and wash me. Make me brand new. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And then help me now to follow you all the days of my life. To give me victory over all temptations. And thank you, Lord, for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.